Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Gary, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. I'm excited to talk about this topic because it's been one that's consumed my life, much like every other researcher probably agrees the same. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself um, for the audience out there as well, too? Yeah, I, um, I was born in Dayton, Ohio back in 1964, and um, I got into the JFK assassination. Uh, it was actually just a luck of the draw thing, Robbie. I um, I had to do a report in 10th grade. You'll love this story. I do a report in 10th grade on a president, and I literally drew JFK's name out of a hat. And so my history teacher said, uh, Gary, are your parents still alive? And I said, yeah. And he goes, ask them where they were. He says, because anybody that was alive uh, knows where they were when Kennedy was killed. And so I did you know, my little homework. You got to realize this was 1980, way before the internet. So all I had was microfilm, and encyclopedias. And so I did my little homework, you know, for a day or so, realized that it happened on a Friday that uh, Oswald was killed on Sunday. And so I went to uh, my mother and I said to her, I said, mom, where were you at when JFK was killed? And she goes, oh, she goes, I was here watching my soap operas. She goes, and they, uh, they broke in on the TV and said that he had been shot. She goes, and about an hour later, they said he'd been, you know, killed. And we were not wealthy growing up, Robbie, uh, but we had a, a live-in nanny that stayed with us Sunday night through Friday morning because both my parents worked in the 60s, which was very unusual at the time. And me and my older brother and sister, we had this live-in nanny that would basically get us up and get us off to school. And so I said to my mom, I said, well, wait a minute, mom, what were you doing home on a Friday afternoon? You know, because we had this live-in nanny. And she goes, oh, I just got back from the doctor and found out I was pregnant with your ass. <laughs> so my mom literally found out she was pregnant with me the day Kennedy was killed. Uh, and so needless to say, I was born, uh, you know, seven months later, seven and a half, eight months, something like that later. Uh, but that's, that's how I got initially involved with this. And then in 1987, I went to Dallas, Texas for the first time. I was 23. And back at that time, the... Texas School Book Depository building was a city building that just had um, Dallas City Records in it. It was an annex building, basically. And so the Sixth Floor Museum wasn't there. They hadn't even started their funding or uh, doing anything. So you, I've, I've actually got pictures in my book of me standing in that window of, you know, of the Sixth Floor Museum, uh, the southeast corner window, the sniper's nest. And when I was, you know, in 1987, I'm standing there and I'm looking. And I'm like, okay, if I was Oswald, when he turned on Main, I'm sorry, from Main Street to Houston, if I'm the assassin, why wouldn't I shoot him right then? He's coming right at me. There's nothing obstructing my view. And if I miss, he's only getting closer. Why would I wait for him to turn onto Elm Street, go down a hill, turn left, then back to the right, through heavy foliage, um, you know, with the Texas live oak tree, I'm like, why would I wait 
until then to do my shooting when he's getting further away. And in 1987, we had a beautiful thing uh, called the phone book. And I literally left that building, went out to the corner of Houston and Elm, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, Houston and Maine, and looked right up in the phone book, flipped right through, there's Jim Lavelle's name and address. And I called Jim Lavelle from right there at the, the payphone and told him I was interested in the Kennedy assassination and you know, asked him if I could come out and talk to him. He, you know, surprisingly, he said, yeah, come on out. And so I literally left there and went and got to, went to Walmart and bought a tape recorder, just a cheapy cassette tape recorder uh, and a city map because again, you didn't have navigation systems. And I drove out to his house and um, talked to him and his wife for probably about an hour and a half. And from that point on, every time I went back to Dallas, I would make a point to uh, interview two or three people while I was there. And over the history of the last 35 years, I've interviewed everybody from eyewitnesses, Parkland doctors. Uh, I interviewed uh Tom Robinson, who embalmed JFK, Paul Grudy, then embalmed Oswald, uh, Secret Service, FBI, anybody you can think of, I basically interviewed. And in 1990, I uh, financially had enough money to buy a um, videotape recorder. You know, things were about that big, weighed about 10 pounds and a tripod. And so I started recording my interviews. And that's what got me hooked into all of this. And I met up with... Um, uh, Larry Howard, who at the time in Dallas had uh, the JFK Assassination Information Center. It was in the West End Marketplace about six blocks from Dealey Plaza. And Larry Howard ended up being the primary consultant on Oliver Stone's movie JFK. Uh, he originally wanted Gary Shaw to do that, but Gary Shaw is a very private individual and didn't want to be involved. So he recommended Larry Howard. And I got to work, you know, I'm not credited in the film, but I got to work on the, the set of JFK uh, through Larry Howard. Uh, so that was that was my involvement of how I got all involved with this. And it's been nonstop for the last 35 years because of it. What conclusions did you come to? I mean, I know I found you through the site, uh, The Innocence of Oswald. And obviously, that's kind of where I'm at as well, too. I, I think Oswald was innocent just because honestly, at this point, I would say it's a trial by media. I think at if there was going to be a trial for Oswald, he might have been uh, convicted, not on the basis of evidence, just because the media was reporting his name constantly saying this is the killer of the president. I mean, magazines were going around, um, whether it was after his death or not. I mean, if he would have made it to a trial, those would have been circulating. And I think at this point, I mean, if you have a jury or any jury not going to be biased, of course, they're going to see this. this is the death of the president. And if the media is saying this, well, the media has to be true. Right. And that's where you kind of see, you know, the people that believed in the conspiracy. Then we have the 1035 document that says, you know, the public must be not the public must be satisfied, but label all new evidence that comes out against the Warren Commission as conspiracy. Because there were people that thought that there was conspiracy. I mean, everyone had the question, why the hell is a strip club owner? killing the killer of the president was he a patriot and by damn if the warren commission didn't put that in their thing like oh his heart goes out to jackie kennedy which we know now was a lie that he concocted to get a you know a lesser sentence or whatever it was right well that's a, the thing the thing about my book that is different than any book you're going to read on the kennedy assassination again you, you told uh, the title the innocence of oswald 
Um, I have over 70 um, related items in my book that had to happen in order for Oswald to be guilty of this, uh, of the two crimes that he was charged with, and that was killing of Tippett and eventually JFK. And the way my book is different is I use government documents from the FBI, the CIA, the Secret Service, the Office of Naval Intelligence, Dallas Police Reports, Dallas Affidavits, Dallas Autopsy Reports. And if you follow the paper trail, he is 100% innocent, okay? Again, you were talking about the media. It is so biased into how they labeled this man guilty and how they manipulated evidence. Uh, for example, uh, the, the interview with the news reporter with uh, Chief Jesse Curry after the paraffin tests were done. And it says, I, I understand you have the results of a paraffin test. And Chief Curry says, I understand they were positive. And he goes, what's that mean? He goes, that means he only fired a gun. He goes, it, it doesn't tie him with the rifle or the pistol, it just meant that he fired a gun. Well, I have a copy of the paraffin test. He was not guilty of gunpowder residue on his hands or his cheek. What he was guilty of was fibers uh, that were picked up on the paraffin tests related to cardboard. Well, his job was to stack books into cardboard boxes and send them all over the state. Well, they took that positive test of cardboard uh, residue on his hands and completely changed it to, I understand that the, that the results were positive. Again, completely manipulating what the results of positive were actually for. And I actually have it in my uh, book, J. Edgar Hoover, in March of the, pre uh, of the following year in 64, uh, basically said the results of the, of the paraffin uh, tests are invalid and should not be included in the Warren Commission based upon the facts that, you know, it, it, it doesn't prove anything and that they're unreliable at that point. And I've always found that when I interviewed people on this subject, and when I, I've got all 26 volumes of the Warren Commission report, it always cracks me up when whenever you watch something in the media about the Kennedy assassination, if somebody shows uh, proof of Oswald's innocence, they're deemed unreliable or, uh, you know, inconclusive or, you, you know, you, you, you can't trust that person, uh, you know. They, they never want to show the true facts. They only want to show one side of the coin. And that's what's always struck me as interesting about how the media and everything else has portrayed this is simply because, you know, Gerald Posner's book was up for um, a Pulitzer Prize in history when he released it, Case Closed, and turned out uh, they did not award a prize for history that year. Uh, but, you know, it got excellent reviews from the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yet you take a conspiracy book like myself, Robert Groden, Mark Lane, all these other authors that have written conspiracy books, you can't get a review by the New York Times, Washington Post to save your life. Um, even the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, Texas, they do not carry a single conspiracy-related book. And I've gone on record there. They have an oral history of me uh, speaking. Uh, with Stephen Fagan, the, the director, uh, the curator now. I, I knew Gary Mack beforehand. I, I know Stephen Fagan now. Nice enough people, but they're paid to tell the lie. And I've always said the lie pays better than the truth. 
whenever I see an interview on the sixth floor museum, they toss softball questions like things. Obviously there's no conspiratorial questions, just basically like you, you tell me what you want to tell me. And then that's how it kind of goes. And I found that to be the most interesting because it was the one with Ruth Payne. Now I don't know if Ruth Payne CIA, I never fought that fought, uh, never fought that fight. But what I did notice in an interview was that she said that once Oswald was killed, um, Marina and her separated and they never made contact ever again. Well, I came across a document that was somebody watching where Marina was that was being held by the Secret Service. And Ruth Payne showed up with mail, knocked on the door and asked to see Marina Oswald and was denied. Marina said she didn't want to see her. Well, right there's a lie. Now, whether she's lying or she forgot, she seems like she's on her stuff whenever she talks. And it's like you start getting pieces of it and little pieces of this, like just inconsistencies where I start going, even with the witnesses, Marina switched her statement later down the road and they go, well, I still don't use her as a witness because it's just too back and forth to be fair in all of this. And we all know courts aren't fair. It's always about there's a winner and a clear loser, whether you're prosecuting or defending. I go, you have to kind of play it by like, all right, you can't use that witness, whether you agree with her before statements, even if she changed her statements later, you have to toss that out. And it gets to this point of like, what, who is Oswald? What is his background? Is he a lone nut? Is he shooting other people's targets at ranges saying, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do to the president. So much of it doesn't make sense where they've tossed enough garbage out there where I feel like at this point, people either give up or they dive heavily into it. And then you get labeled a conspiracy theorist. Well, do you know who I think was actually shooting at those targets that you were talking about? No, it wasn't Oswald. It was Michael Payne. He looks almost identical to Lee Harvey Oswald. Hey, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of Ruth Payne's husband. I have. I saw the interview with him um, back when he, he was sitting on the couch. He looks so identical. But here's the thing I'll tell you about Ruth Payne, too, about – I won't say CIA connections, but I'll say complicity is, you know, the, the morning of the assassination, she supposedly left the house at 9 – left her house at 9.30 that morning uh, after Oswald had left, obviously. And she was uh, taking her two young children, which at the time I think were like two and four, uh, to a dentist appointment on a Friday afternoon. And she uh, also claimed in her warrant commission testimony that she was going to the grocery store. Uh, she left the TV on, even though the motorcade was not being televised, she left the TV on for uh, Marina so that when the TV news report broke the tv would automatically be on and there was no way that marina could miss the, the story so she comes back at approximately one o'clock um and uh ironically oswald was arrested at 140 at the texas theater it takes approximately 20 to 25 minutes to drive to the police station and even though they did not book him immediately for the um, assassination of President Kennedy or the murder of Tippett, instead of booking him and doing the basics of getting fingerprints, mug shots, and so forth, that didn't happen until about 7 o'clock that evening. They took him immediately to the Homicide uh, Bureau, room 317, and started questioning him. Um, and then Gus Rose, Detective Gus Rose, and five other uh, DPD and uh, Dallas deputy sheriffs left the um, police station and drove to the Payne household in Irving, which again is about another 25 to 30 minute drive from the police station. 
Well, when they arrived there at approximately uh, 2.30, 2.40 in the afternoon, Marina, I'm sorry, uh, Ruth Payne opened the door and said, come on in, I've been expecting you. Well, at that particular time, there hadn't been any reports of Oswald's arrest. There hadn't been any, um, you know, they just said that uh, they think the shots came from the fifth floor originally of the Texas School Book Depository. But again, he was one of over 100 employees at that particular building. Why would Ruth Payne say, come on in, I've been expecting you, when there's been nothing listed of Oswald being the shooter, nothing listed as Oswald being uh, arrested, but she's expecting the police to show up at her house for some reason at 2.30 in the afternoon. I don't buy it. She had previous knowledge. She also admitted in her Warren Commission testimony that she went to the grocery store on Saturday and Sunday. Okay. She also admitted in The Men Who Killed Kennedy by Nigel Turner that when Oswald came out to the house that particular evening on Thursday the night before, that she had been to the grocery store and bought groceries then. Okay. Back in the 60s, housewives did not go to the grocery store every day. They went once a week, usually on the weekends when their husband was there to watch the children. Now, granted, she was uh, separated from Michael Payne and with um, Marina living there, you know, she could have left any time and left the kids with Marina to watch. But I just don't buy her story. Okay. well, it was even a detective that said you got groceries twice. Like there was a question about that. Yeah, Thursday night, Friday at Friday morning. I mean, she went she went Thursday evening, you know, b- before uh, Oswald showed up at the uh, house, but then turned right back around the next morning on Friday and took her kids to the dentist and went back to the store. Okay, and here's the other thing: um, children in the '60s they didn't have dentist appointments before the age of four years old. It just didn't happen. I mean, um, you know, it happens now. It didn't happen in the 60s. I'm just telling you, as a child of the 60s, I didn't see a dentist until I was probably seven or eight years old. Um, it, it just didn't happen. And so I, I therefore, I don't buy her story. Um, I also don't buy her story that, you know, when the police came and, you know, by the way, she, she gave them a complete access to her house without a search warrant. I don't know if you've ever seen the handwritten note. Uh, that she uh, gave police, but she allowed them to search the house that particular day without a search warrant. And when they uh, when they asked Marino where the, if he owned a gun, and she said, you know, yes. And they said, do you know where it's at? And she pointed towards the uh, garage. Uh, well, they went out there, and again, the the police picked up the blanket that supposedly covered the rifle, and you know, there was no rifle underneath of it, and. That's when uh, Ruth Payne says, at that point, I felt that he could have been the assassin. That's what she says on the men who killed Kennedy. And she says, anything that you know they need to know, I'm going to you know, give them the information. Well, here's the other thing. In her Warren Commission testimony, she also admits to um, spending a lot of time in that garage. She liked to work uh, with wood, and she would make the little childhood blocks, the building blocks, you know, letters of A, B, C, and numbers, and paint them. And so she would work on these building blocks and, you know, sand them down, paint them and everything for her kids. And her her woodworking supplies and the, the paint and the varnish and everything was literally two feet from where this rifle supposedly was laying on the floor. But she claimed she never knew there was a rifle there. She literally had to step over the blanket every time she went in the garage. Um, and here's the other thing. You know, she she claims that she was um 
she took Marina in out of pity and she wanted to learn the Russian language and she felt she could help Marina with her English. Uh, that again is another hogwash story. Uh, Ruth Payne was very fluent in the Russian language. She actually taught a college course in 1957 in Pennsylvania on the Russian language. So she wasn't using that as quote, an excuse to have Marina live with her to learn the language better. She was already very fluent in, in Russian. Well, she was teaching a small boy that apparently Oswald was caught seen with from a barber. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of things that didn't really make sense. I mean, I, the Ruth Payne angle, I've talked to Max Good when he interviewed her and he made his documentary. I looked into the, the post office, the P.O. box about the rifle that was ordered there. I had Tom Graham explain that the mail transfers were never filed or right as soon as Marina goes up, um, which Ruth Payne had a driver because Marina couldn't drive. But they drove up to New Orleans and on the way back, instead of changing her post address from, um, the, I guess, the uh, to the New Orleans apartment, it was switched over to Ruth Payne's house. Now, Marina barely spoke English, so you're asking her to file a mail transfer by herself. Well, Ruth Payne had to help there. And people say that's how you know she's CIA. And I go, I, I also feel like she probably felt lonely at the time. I mean, she separated from her husband and I kind of look at that angle as well, too. I mean, you have this person staying with her and it only makes sense. And I know people chalk it up into the more far extreme when it comes to like her, this lesbian angle. I don't know that, but I get to the point. I mean, she separated with her husband. She has a woman that's now living with her. Lee's not allowed at the house, but for some reason, every story I'm reading now, she talks about Lee being in the house and he's always around. So some, something's not adding up. Right. And, 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 you know, with her being separated from Michael, um, here's the ironic thing about Michael. They did not technically divorce, I believe, until 1967 or something like that. Uh, Michael has more ties technically to the CIA than Ruth does. Uh, but my point is you can't be married to somebody in the CIA and not know that they're CIA. Um, you know, he did work for Bell Helicopter, uh, which was kind of a front company for the CIA in the Vietnam War. Um, but ironically, like I said, they didn't separate till 67, but his entire life until he died, I think in 17 or something like that, he literally followed her all around the country. Whenever she moved somewhere, he moved somewhere. Um, and another interesting thing about Michael Payne that, again, a lot of people don't know, um, you know, they act like they were just a, a very middle-class family. Uh, they bought that house, I think, in 1960. Uh, but, you know, acted like they were very, you know, middle-class and salt-of-the-earth people. Well, in my research, I found out that um, his grandmother passed away uh, in 1960, and she left uh, an inheritance for all of her grandchildren, which I think was 15 at the time in 1960. She left each of those children $270-some-thousand dollars, uh, you know, in their inheritance, which is equal to about two and a half to three million today. So they act like they were very middle-class working people. They were very well-to-do. It's why they knew the DeMorne Schultz. Um, I like said they they have too many ties to the CIA, including the fact that uh, Michael Payne's mother, who was also named Ruth, uh, her best friend was the mistress of Alan Dulles. Uh, so there's just too many 
coincidences. I, again, I, I I don't have any verifiable proof that that Michael or Ruth were CIA. I have documents that say uh, from the CIA that they uh, that Michael applied uh, for work for the CIA. I don't have any proof that they said that they had, uh, agreed to it and he actually became an agent or anything. Uh, but like I said, it's it's like um, it's like in my book where I've got 70 coincidences that had to happen in order for Lee to be guilty. You know, after one or two, you can call it a coincidence. But when there's 30, 40, 50, you know, coincidences, at that point, you got to call it what it is. You know, it's not a coincidence at that point. You know, there's where there's smoke, there's fire, so to speak. When it comes to the backyard photographs, um, how do you explain that to people? I believe the backyard photographs are actually um uh from um roscoe white um when i i talked to marina about the backyard photographs and the first thing that she told me was she wasn't he wasn't standing underneath the stairs she was underneath the stairs and he was against the other fence not the one that's in behind him but the one on this side of it and she goes i, I you know i took pictures of him but it was against that particular fence um, and I believe the backyard photographs are forgeries, and I believe that it's uh, Roscoe White from basically the bottom lip down, and it's Lee Harvey Oswald from the top lip up. You can see a crop mark in the photograph that goes right through the mouth. Uh, Stephen Jaffe uh, also verified this. And the biggest thing is you look at the, the jawline of Oswald in that photograph, and he's got a very square jaw where Oswald didn't have a square jaw. Uh, Roscoe White did, um, you know, but Oswald's chin was actually very pointy with a, a little cleft in his chin, and you don't see that in the backyard photographs. And here's the thing, both Lee Harvey Oswald and Roscoe White, when they were in the military, they were stationed at Tsugi, Japan, and working for uh, the intelligence agencies of our country. They were in charge of the reconnaissance photographs being taken by the U-2 spy planes. These two guys, Roscoe White and Lee Harvey Oswald, had the highest clearance level you could get in the military, confidential. And like I said, they were overlooking the photographs taken of the U-2 spy planes and relaying their uh, information back to the intelligence agencies of this country. And in October of 63, I think it was October 7th, about six weeks before the assassination, Roscoe White was hired by the Dallas Police Department and his job was photographic expert. That was, that's what his job was in the police department in 1963. He didn't go to the police academy until January of 64. So basically for two and a half, three months, he had free reign to do whatever he wanted to and basically was not, wasn't under anybody's watchful eye, I would say. So he had plenty of time to, to doctor these photographs, so to speak. Uh, and even Oswald said when he was shown the photograph by Captain Fritz, he said, it's a fake. He goes, and in time, I can prove to you it's a fake. Um, you know, I like I said, with Marina's testimony to me that she was standing underneath the stairs because, again, they lived in that apartment. I don't know if you've ever been to the 214 Neely Street address. They lived in the apartment at the top of the stairs. Okay, so you could enter in the front of the house at, they had a 214 and I think a 212. Um, 212 was all the bottom level. 214 was all the top level. So when you walked in the front door of 214, 
you immediately went up steps that led you right into the kitchen. And they also had steps that uh, went out from that same area to outside. So Marina said to me, we simply walked down the steps. He stood over by the fence and I took the pictures. Um, again, too many things in that backyard photograph. Do you know about the ghost image, uh, Robbie? I don't know about the ghost image. I thought you were going to mention shadows. Well, the shadows, yeah. I mean, you obviously see differences in light there, but uh, the ghost image was found in 1975 in the Dallas police files, and I've got it in my book. All it is is just the background of that um, backyard photograph, and it's just a white outline of a person holding a gun and the communist newspaper. There's not an actual person there. It's just a white outline so that they can literally Photoshop, you know, what well, they didn't Photoshop back then, but, but literally put, you know, uh, the image of Oswald into that particular area. And that was found in 1975, 12 years after the assassination and four years after Roscoe White had passed away. I know we're not sticking exactly to what your book's probably about or where your knowledge might consist of, but I feel like you might have the answers to some of these questions for me to fill in some gaps. Did you not think it was strange that they called him this lone nut and he has like this silenced opinion, didn't say too much, but then there was videos of him doing speeches talking about like, com or not communism, but Marxism and just a bunch of this, like that's strange. And I mean, in that specific moment, why is Oswald, if he's, why is he going on radio shows if he's this quiet individual that never speaks his opinion and nobody knows who this mysterious character is? Well, and they, they want to label him as a lone nut, can't keep a job and all this stuff. Uh, when he went into the military, uh, you know, one of the first things that they do is they do an IQ test. They do uh, testing to make sure you're not mentally crazy and everything. Well, they tested uh, Oswald's IQ and turned out to be 151. Supposedly a high school dropout has an IQ of 151. The guy was very intelligent. Okay. They call him a lone nut, loser, uh, Vector, they, they call him all these things, and I don't know if you've ever done any uh, uh, research into this, but it's quite interesting. Um, there's another person in history, and I'm just going to give you a, a, a brief story about them. Um, they were labeled the same, a loser, loner, um, uh, switched schools uh, from the time that he was eight years old until he was 16. Every year was switching schools, similar to Oswald. Um, Unlike Oswald, he had both parents, but, um, you know, ended up dropping out of school because he didn't agree with the, the curriculum and didn't agree with what the teachers were saying. Uh, eventually, he defected from his country uh, so that he would not have to uh, serve in World War One. OK, so he's got all these things that happened to him of uh, being a loser and you know, transferring to all these schools and a defector and, you know, he's just a, a, you know, total loser. Well, that person ended up being a guy by the name of Albert Einstein. Okay. And we all know what loser Albert Einstein turned into. Okay. Again, they, 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 they labeled Lee Oswald, all these things, and he was none of them. Uh, the guy was gifted. He was intelligent. Um, you know, again, you're talking about the uh, WDSU uh, interview in August of 63 in New Orleans, you know, very well spoken. Um, 
Well, he was very well spoken, but they didn't give him a platform to really be able to speak anything. Uh, even when he's being, in, you know, interviewed by some media people, where he says that I'm famous, I'm just a patsy. Uh, that, that was it was very rushed. It was seemed like they were trying to bring him somewhere as well too. And he was kind of taken back a little bit. I don't even think he really knew what he was being arrested for at the time. No, he actually says uh, you can look it up on YouTube. He actually says, "I don't know what I'm here for." Uh, and and another thing that's ironic that I found in my research is. He had a, he was charged with the murder of Tippett at seven o'clock that evening. Okay. At eight o'clock that evening, um, um, an attorney came to see Oswald uh, to make sure that his uh, civil rights were not being violated and offered to uh, uh, be his attorney. And Oswald said he wanted John Apt uh, out of New York City. And then if he couldn't get John Apt, he wanted a uh, ACLU attorney to represent him. And when he went to the midnight press conference uh, right before midnight, and they're asking him, you know, questions and everything, the media. And, um, you know, one of the people say to him, you know, did you kill the president? He goes, no, I've not been charged with that yet. He goes, the first thing I heard about it was when the newspapers uh, in the hall asked me that question. And then you hear in the background, you hear somebody say, you have been charged. And he says, what? He says, you have been charged. And he has this look of total confusion on his face. Okay. Dallas police told the media before they informed Oswald, he was not charged for the murder of JFK until 1.30 in the morning on November 23rd. So he's at that press conference right before midnight. The media knows he's being charged for the Kennedy assassination. He does it. Um, again. Yeah, this was before the Miranda Law in 1966. Uh, with them not having a stenographer in any of the meetings that they questioned Oswald, anything he said in private would not have been admitted in court. Uh, they knew they didn't have a case with him. And, you know, a perfect example, uh, Jim Lavelle, when I first met Jim in 87, he told me, uh, he goes, have we gone to trial on what we had on Lee Harvey Oswald at the time of his death? He would have not been found guilty. He goes, we didn't have enough proof. He goes, we were trying to make a case against him on Tippett to hold him for the Tippett murder so that we can make a case for the Kennedy assassination. And that's what Jim Lavelle told me. And Jim Lavelle and I were friends for 30 years. I went to his funeral. Um, but he went to his grave believing Oswald was guilty of something. Uh, but, you know, he admitted we didn't have enough evidence to, to convict him did you notice like a lot of the interviews and a lot of the time he had he didn't he wasn't very like you know he wasn't like rushing to be like hey i didn't do it and like try and explain all this stuff. he seemed like he was kind of keeping his cool and a lot of people that's how you know he's a double agent or that's how you, i don't think that what i think it is is i think if he's connected he knew someone was going to help get him out of this situation he was just like i need to sit quiet i need to do what i need to do not, and so not say anything yeah not say anything and wait for them to come in and you know, wait for the white horse to come in and rescue me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, he, he, for the people, you know, for example, Michael Payne, you know, said that he was, you know, so proud of what he had done. Well, so proud of him. Why did he, you know, vehemently deny his involvement at every opportunity he got? Um, again, I, I feel that Oswald felt like somebody from the government was going to come in and basically say, hey, you got the wrong guy. and you know, I, I don't think that he ever thought that he would go to trial for this, uh, let alone get killed for it. But, you know, there's a there's an old saying in the mafia 
three of you can keep the secret of two of you are dead. I got to ask, uh, there's going to be kind of be two big questions, but when you talk to Marina, did you ask her about her relationship with Oswald? Because one thing I keep mentioning, it's from documents is like, this seems like the most dysfunctional relationship that I've ever seen. Most couples would have split in a lot of sense. I mean, it's in the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Volume 2, where she states, I didn't pay attention to what he was doing with his rifle. And that's where people say like, oh, he's in the backyard. She heard him reloading it. Well, she didn't even think to care what he was doing. She didn't want to, she didn't have any interest yeah she um i mean she she admitted you know numerous times that they had a rocky relationship uh that you know he wasn't a role model husband i mean you know i hate to say it but you know he slapped her around a little bit but you know my father slapped my mother around a little bit in the 60s i mean it's not right but it happened uh but i felt that she for one she felt like she needed to stay with him um for stability purposes because of the two children uh, to uh, obtain U.S. citizenship. You got to realize she didn't have citizenship yet. And when they first came over to the United States, uh, you know, they were they were given money by the, the U.S. government to travel. And, you know, obviously they paid that back. But, um, but uh, you know, she, she, uh, she always said you know, through the Warren Commission hearings and everything, she always said that he was guilty out of fear that she's going to be deported back to the Soviet Union. Uh, but she immediately, privately uh, started to doubt, uh, you know, the Warren Commission in the uh, mid to early 70s with the Church Committee and the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Uh, so she started doubting that he was involved then. Uh, but again, you know, she, she wasn't... Uh, actively i'd say involved in in what he was doing on a daily basis but she was involved enough to want the ring back from his you know his body well i think that was more of a financial thing than more than anything else okay. that ring sold at auction for like one hundred eighteen thousand dollars. uh so i think that was more of a financial decision than anything else because you know she immediately sold it did she ever explain um, the relationship between Margaret Oswald and her her son? Like, because her son, I mean, her in general, she made statements about her son that he was CIA and a bunch of things and never wavered from her stance on defending her son. And I guess that's what mothers do. Most mothers would have that type of defense. But at the same time, she knew a lot where I was like either. Lee was communicating with her, with his mother, even though everyone says the relationship, they didn't like each other. I'm like, well, most 24 year olds hate their mother. And they say that at the time, or Marina was giving her information because the things that she was saying were dead on accurate to what the actual picture was. Well, there's, it's interesting that you say that because, uh, Robbie in 1967, CBS news did a, uh, um, a report, you know, in 67 was when, uh, Mark Lane and, um, uh, Joaquin Jostein and so forth started writing conspiracy related books. And so CBS News decided, well, we got to do uh, an all new story to basically um, support the Warren Commission. And they even actually had um, uh, John McCloy as one of the people on the panel that they, they ran this uh, program. And in the program, they interview Marguerite Oswald and she says, to CBS's news, Eddie Barker, you know, my son was CIA. She goes, you know, I know he was CIA. She goes, because I have so much correspondence from the State Department 
that he sent me from when he, the time that he was in Russia. So she's admitting, you know, I know he was CIA. I know he was intelligence agencies of this country. And instead of investigating it any further, of course, all CBS News does is they just gloss over her statement as, again, hearsay or unreliable and move on to the next bullet point that says, you know, well, your son did this. How do you explain that? You know, that sort of thing. And like I said, she she corresponded with him enough. And she even says, you know, in the um, in the um, CBS inquiry, Eddie Barker says, do you feel your son was a CIA agent? She goes, it's not that I feel that way. She goes, I know he was because of the correspondence that I've received from him. And he says, well, did he ever say that to you? And Marguerite says, well, no, he wouldn't say that. She goes, you know, maybe out of, you know, wanting to protect his mother and not let him not let her know that, you know, he's actually working with a clandestine, you know, organization and, you know, or maybe out of fear that I'll blurt it out to somebody and, you know, say my son's CIA when he shouldn't be known that he's CIA. So she says all this stuff in the CBS News inquiry in 1967. And like I said, they just like, eh, you know, that's that's your viewpoint, not ours. Yeah, I, I still stick with the ground like they had to be communicating. I mean, I know she has the letters back and forth, but I mean, he's defecting in Russia and people said it, they were reaching out for money from her. And I'm just like, I don't know if that's what it is. There's there's a lot of weird stuff you start to notice, like when he comes back to the United States, he was interviewed by one person, the FBI guy, I think like for an hour, but there was no news coverage on it. There was no, and they did surveil his mail. We know that they surveilled up his stuff for up to four years, but they dropped it the week of the assassination where I'm like, if you look at Oswald after his death, from all the interviews you've done, who, who maybe did the most interesting or just had either the most to gain or something. I mean, when he died, I've seen pictures of Ruth Payne, Marina, and Margaret all sitting on the couch together. And Ruth, I guess, is on the floor, but she's the only one crying. Margaret is. So I'm just like, she opened up an investigation. She wanted Mark Lane to be the lawyer for Oswald, and then he ended up declining it or, I guess, getting fired from it. But well, no, he, the, the Warren Commission wouldn't let him uh, be counsel for Oswald uh, since he was dead. So I have we have all this documentation up to the point to where he gets killed. And we have a little bit, obviously, as it's coming out after. But a lot of the new documents are stuff that are happening before and kind of like other events that are going around where I just start going from the people that you interviewed. Did you find anything interesting after Oswald was killed? What started happening? That's kind of a loaded question, because, again, there's so many different avenues that you can go down, um, you know, I, I just, I relay it to, again, Marino had to say that he was guilty in order to stay into the country. Uh, and like you said, the day after the assassination, her and Ruth never spoke together uh, and still have it, uh, you know, 59 years later. Um, as far as. I mean, Ruth's garage is magic. There was new evidence that was constantly coming out of it. So like she was happy to keep, you know, disclosing this and getting articles written and all this stuff about it, where I just start going. I mean, we have a video where it's people sneaking in and I guess messing with Oswald's body or maybe people say he's lifting fingerprints or something like that. And it's just like, all right, like there's a lot more that starts happening afterwards to really wrap this case up so shut. And I mean, 
we when we say this, everyone's like, oh, that sounds conspiratorial. The easiest way to understand it is if you look at what the fear of communism was back then and the reason why they had to make sure it was sewn up with one guy. And sadly, the one person they had a good profile on that worked and was basically in the perfect spot was Oswald. I mean, if you look at I don't know if it's Chicago or if it's Miami, but there was a guy with the same exact profile as Oswald that was going to be the shooter. And that, that didn't happen, though. Yeah, that was in Chicago. That was uh, Thomas Arthur Valley. Uh, same thing. He uh, he moved from uh, I believe it was New York City to Chicago six weeks before the assassination. Uh, got a job right on the parade route in a high uh, you know building with a uh, you know several floors. Um, you know, and he was supposed to be the assassin of. JFK when JFK went to Chicago in November, November 2nd for the Army Navy game at Soldier Field that year. And uh, again, an unidentified source by the name of Lee uh, supposedly called the, uh, the FBI and uh, basically thwarted that assassination attempt. But yeah, I mean, they had um, the, the I, I hate to say it this way, but the, organi the organizers of this assassination had patsies in place in Miami, um, Tampa, Chicago, and Dallas. Um, the, um, um, you know, Antonio Viciana uh, was supposedly uh, going to be an assassin in Tampa area. Um, I'm sorry, Miami. Uh, like I said, they had a patsy in place in every city. Wherever they could pull this off, that was where it was going to happen. Was there an issue going on with Oswald having to move to or New Orleans that was going to create a problem with this Patsy angle? Well, I mean, it's yes and no, but I mean, you know, again, he moved back and forth from New Orleans to Dallas. Uh, you know, he basically went where he was told to go. I mean, he was, a, you know, a good soldier, so to speak, and he thought that he was doing covert operations that would probably save the president instead of kill the president. But when he, when the president ended up dead, he realized then that he was, you know, he was the patsy and he was going to be the one taking the blame for it. Um, Did you ever look into Buell Frazier when he talked about the curtain rods? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I know Buell. He, uh, he, you know, he, he very specifically stated when he was driving to Oswald to uh, work that morning, he said he looked over the his shoulder and said, you know, what's that? You know, in the brown paper wrapper. And he goes, that's the curtain rods. He goes, remember, you brought me out here last night so I could get the curtain rods from my apartment. And, you know, he even admitted uh, in The Men Who Killed Kennedy that when Oswald got out of the car that morning to go to work, he took the uh, package that he said it contained curtain rods and put one underneath his arm and cuffed the other one in his hand and walked off to the building. And he said, you know, couldn't have been more than about two foot long, give or take an inch. And that rifle, when broken down, was still like 32, 33 inches long. When it was broken down, the wood stock of the entire gun was still intact, and you had the, the barrel itself that would come off. I mean, it was still 30-some inches long. Um, and, and I want to go back to something else you had mentioned, too, about you know Ruth Payne and so forth. Uh, do you realize that in all of the uh, interviews in the Warren Commission, Ruth Payne has the most testimony of anybody in the entire 26 volumes. She's the star witness. Yeah. She, she, her, her, Warren Commission, her Warren Commission testimony is 91 pages long. 
if uh, and she supposedly only knew Oswald and Marina from February of '63 until November. Um, I couldn't give you 91 pages of testimony on my brother right now. Um, it's like you said, it, she was their star witness, and she, you know, mirac miraculously, whatever needed to be said or done, she she complied. Did any? Well, I know later they found out that Jack Ruby was an informant for the FBI, but there are statements from Jack Ruby or people that were around Jack Ruby that said they saw Oswald and they saw Dallas police hanging out at his club. I mean, is any of that verified? Because that's even with Oswald, that still doesn't. I mean, I'm going to end up asking about the General Walker shooting as well, too. But I mean, they said like in the General Walker shooting, they said there were the two suspects that allegedly shot General Walker. Was it Oswald and Ruby? And I'm like, all right. So is there a relationship with Jack Ruby and Oswald before Jack Ruby kills Oswald? Yeah, they, they knew each other very well. I've got uh, documented in my book uh, probably five or six eyewitnesses that seen them in the club together, including Beverly Oliver. Um, have you ever done any uh, investigation into the Roscoe White incident? Mm -mm. Okay. Roscoe White, uh, for example, um, he died in 1971, uh, very suspicious um, chemical fire. Uh, in 1982, his son, Ricky, was looking around the, uh, his grandparents' home in Paris, Texas, and they had this kind of like a little secret compartment in a, a bedroom closet, a little trap door. And he raised up the trap door and found a, a box in there, and it contained uh, several items that was very unusual. Um, and there were three decoded cables uh, about Roscoe White's involvement with the uh, assassination. And one of the other things was a picture of Ricky White's mother, Geneva, uh, with Jack Ruby. She actually worked at the Carousel Club for about three weeks in September of 63. Uh, so we know for a fact that Roscoe White later became a cop in October of uh, October 7th of 63, and that he went into the carousel club to pick up his wife all the time. So you've got somebody that has, uh, you know, has been dead for 11 years in 1982. He has documents that basically orders the assassination and what he's to do afterwards. Um, and again, this is a guy that just happened to serve with Lee Harvey Oswald while they were in the Marines together. Uh, too many coincidences. And another thing I don't know if you're aware of or not, but, uh, you know, the intelligence agency, you, you mentioned earlier that for four years they were tracking Oswald. In uh, June of 1960, before Kennedy was even uh, elected president, J. Edgar Hoover put out a memo that said somebody was trying to use Oswald's um, uh, birth certificate to, to get an alias. Uh, so they're tracking Oswald in June of 1960, even after he's out of the Marines, after he supposedly defected. And they're, they're, they're following you know, Oswald around for almost four years before the assassination. I mean, again, he was being set up for this. I believe Oswald and Roscoe White working together with intelligence. The intelligence agencies of this country knew that they, always, that they had an assassin and a fall guy if they ever needed it. Who do you think was in charge of the assassination plot? You know, I, I get asked that all the time. Um, 
it's a dumb question to ask a JFK researcher, but I, I, I've kind of shifted more from, I think Alan Dulles was part of the cover-up. Um, I used to think he was in charge of it, but also I heard some interesting things about uh, five, is it 5412 or the Operation 40 um, and Nixon's involvement into a little bit. That's got me definitely more curious into a lot of this stuff as well, too. Yeah. Uh, well, and also, I mean, besides Operation 40, you know, you got Alpha 66, you got ZR Rifle, JM Wade, you've got, you know, who actually ordered the assassination. Um, you know, for the longest time, I didn't want to believe it, but um, all the evidence that I have right now points to Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he was about to be dropped from the 64 ticket. Uh, he was going to go to jail for extortion and bribery. Uh, if you get a chance, Robbie, look up oldlifemagazines.com and you can go to the November 8th, 1963 issue and the November 22nd, 1963 issue. And it's all about Lyndon Johnson's involvement with Bobby Baker in illegal uh, bending machine operations and uh, with Billy Saul Estes in illegal cotton allotments uh, in Texas. Um, these articles, in my opinion, were leaked by Robert Kennedy to um, Henry Luce and C.D. Jackson at Life Magazine uh, so that they because both of them, C.D. Jackson and Henry Luce, were both CIA. Uh, they were part of uh, Operation Mockingbird. But they couldn't resist the fact of getting information on a sitting vice president involving criminal activities that, that Robert Kennedy's whole plan was to release this information to the uh, Time Life and have them write articles and have basically just an upswelling of people saying, what the hell is our vice president doing that he would basically be forced to resign and like I said, basically go to jail at that point. Um, you know, unfortunately, the November 22nd uh, article came out the day of the assassination. Obviously, people didn't read it as much because they were drawn to the TV for three solid days. Uh, but, you know, even when I interviewed um, Evelyn Lincoln back in, I think, 89 or 90, uh, it had to be 89 uh, or 90 before I got to the uh, video camera because it's on tape. But she even said, you know, she asked, uh, you know, uh, JFK, you know, who's going to be the vice president of 64? He goes, I don't know who it's going to be, but it will not be Lyndon. He had already told her that. Uh, a lot of people think he would have chosen either uh, George Smathers or Mike Mansfield as his, uh, uh, as his new vice president. Out of all the people you've interviewed, what's one thing that still kind of puzzles you today? Do you have anything that somebody might have told you that like either you can't fit into anything or maybe it just doesn't seem like it's as crucial as maybe an interview with Marina Oswald? Um, not really. Um, you know, there, there, have been some, there have been some things that have, you know, said to me that I didn't fully grasp at the time, but the more that I, you know, dug into it, the more it made sense, uh, including uh, Gary Shaw. Um, you know, Gary Shaw, first generation researcher, uh, very private man as well. But, uh, you know, when I was interviewing Gary, he, he had asked me, he goes, uh, he goes, what do you know about Roscoe White? 
And I said, well, I said, you know, I know he was a policeman and he served with, uh, you know, with Oswald and the Marines. And he goes, what else do you know? And I said, well, I said, you know, that's about it. I said, uh, you know, there's, there's rumors that he, you know, possibly was, you know, one of the assassins. And, and so, uh, Gary Shaw at that point said to me, he goes, uh, he goes, I'm going to stop the interview right now. He goes, uh, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, I'm, you know, I don't have any plans. And he goes, uh, I'm going to make a phone call. He goes, you know, give me a second. He disappeared. Came back in the room about five minutes later. And uh, he told me and the friend that was there with me, he goes, uh, tomorrow, he goes, you're going to drive down to uh, Waco, Texas. He goes, and you're going to go to the, uh, the Baylor University to the Pogue Library. He goes, you're going to meet with this certain individual. He goes, and he's going to give you all the stuff that I have on Roscoe White. And so I was like, okay. He goes, feel free to photocopy any of it that you want. He goes, uh, all that I ask you to do is, uh, you know, make a, a donation to the library. Uh, he goes, it doesn't cost you anything. He goes, but, uh, you know, they'll, they'll photocopy anything you want. He goes, just make a donation. So I was like, that's easy enough. And so that's where I first got my hands on the three decoded cables of September 63, October 63, and December 63. And the, the September of 63 uh, was to Roscoe White, but it was all written in code. And it was all from the Office of Naval Intelligence. And the first one said, Remarks uh, Mandarin. He went by the code name of Mandarin. And I don't know if you've ever done any research and real, ever heard of Saul, Lebanon, and Mandarin as three of the shooters at JFK. But his, his code name was Mandarin. But what was more telling on that particular cable from the Office of Naval Intelligence, it basically said Dallas, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Dallas destination chosen, your place hidden with the department, um, you know, continue on, you know, for future plans or remarks, something to, you know, I'm paraphrasing. But basically what it said was Dallas destination chosen. That's not the assassination. That was them placing uh roscoe white into the police force for the for at the time um and it said your place hidden within the department well that was his job as photographic expert and again how many people had photographs of crime scenes back in the in the 60s you know it wasn't like a like like today where everybody's got a cell phone camera you know back then you didn't have pictures of the crime scene until after the crime had occurred um but anyhow, it has that document. And the most important thing on the document is underneath the Office of Naval Intelligence and the date of September 63, it has the number 1666106, which was actually Roscoe White's Marine identification number. So it ties him to this cable through his connection with the Marines and uh, Office of Naval Intelligence. Uh, again, him and uh, Lee Oswald were both officers of Naval Intelligence, CIA, whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, in the late 50s in the military. Uh, and so the second document of October 63 uh, basically says, um, again, I'm paraphrasing that, um, you know, the plans have changed. We're not going to, um, you know, kill uh, foreign assignments have been, it says foreign assignments have been canceled. The next assignment is to eliminate a, uh, a threat to national security. 
Um, and basically that document says, we're not going to kill Fidel Castro, we're going to kill JFK. And it says in the document, destination will be Houston, Austin, or Dallas. Stand by for you know more more details, so supposedly. Uh, so that tells me right there, Dallas, Austin, or Houston. The assassination is going to happen in one of those three locations. Roscoe White is the cop that they've got on the force in Dallas. So the, the Office of Naval Intelligence placed two other people in Houston and Austin to be the inside guy on the police force. Because again, they already knew it wasn't going to happen outside of there because plans in Miami, Tampa, and Chicago had all been thwarted beforehand. Uh, so, you know, they knew the assassination was going to happen in Texas because Miami, Tampa, and Chicago were all under mob rule, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, Giancana, uh, Roselli, Tropicante. Uh, Texas was controlled by Lyndon Johnson and the Ed Clark Law Firm. And they knew that having the crime in Texas that they could solve or cover up everything that happened uh, with all the aspects of the crime. And that, again, gets into how the Secret Service was involved because the Secret Service illegally removed JFK's body out of Parkland Hospital for the autopsy. Um, they actually violated 16 different rules of presidential protection the night of uh, Thursday, November 21st until uh, the night of uh, Friday, November 22nd. Uh, they invited, I, I violated 16 different rules, including going out drinking the night before to Pat Sellers nightclub. And I believe the statement was that none of them are going to lose their jobs because we don't want to tarnish their record to their families, which is just like, it doesn't matter. Their one job is to protect the president. And obviously they didn't do a good job at it. Right. Right. Uh, well, I mean, you probably know about the, uh, the, the party the night before at the Murchison house? I've heard of a party, but I've never gotten to specifics about it. Okay. Um, there was a party the night before. And again, all of your uh, lone nutters say, oh, no, that's, that's, you know, that's been proven. That didn't happen. Well, um, I spoke with the person that was at the party, Madeline Brown. And uh, the party was the night before at Clint Murchison's house in Dallas. And the attendees of this party were... Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, John McCone of the CIA, John McCloy of the World Bank, uh, Lyndon Johnson. Nixon was there earlier, but he had actually left around eight o'clock that evening before Johnson had ever showed up. Um, but, um, you know, and then, and then there was uh, George Brown of uh, uh, Burton was there. Um, you know, all these people that were at the party basically had something to lose if JFK had lived. And Lyndon Johnson came out of this party and walked up to Madeline Brown, who was his mistress, um, <clears throat> and had been since like 1940. Um, but she, um, uh, she walked, he walked up to uh, Madeline Brown and said, um, after tomorrow, those goddamn Kennedys will never embarrass me again. That's not a threat, that's a promise. And uh, Madeline gave me this information back in the 90s. And she uh, said that she called him the next day at the uh, Texas hotel. And he repeated the claim to her that morning that after today, those damn Kennedys will never embarrass me again. That's not a threat. That's a promise. I th he, it, that just sounds like someone, obviously, we knew that Bobby Kennedy, we knew that Jack both had 
very close a relationship. They're brothers, but they there's pictures of them talking like privately to each other. They obviously had their own little secret conversations, you know, between brothers, because that's where the trust was. And they didn't really feel like they could probably trust anybody else in the administration. But that was also a threat to the establishment in a sense, too. It was like, hey, you got these two guys that are making plans and making moves without anybody else in your administration that can easily be, you know, pulled aside. Like, hey, what did what'd they say in there? You got two brothers that aren't going to betray each other's trust. Well, you know, and when, when, uh, when uh, LBJ was offered the vice presidency, um, they didn't think he would accept. Uh, but they knew if they 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 felt like they had to offer it to him because he came in second, and they knew they needed somebody from the South to carry the South, and they didn't expect him to accept the nomination. And when he did, um, Robert Kennedy went back down to Lyndon Johnson's room and tried to talk him out of taking the job. Um, and you know, Rob. Um, Robert Kennedy went back up and told JFK, you know, we can't have this guy, you know, he's a loose cannon. We can't have him on the ticket. And JFK said to him, says, don't worry about Johnson. Said, all, all we're going to do with him is fly him halfway around the country, attending state funerals and opening up museums and, you know, landmarks. Like, you know, he's not going to be involved. Um, and Lyndon Johnson, you know, when he said that he accepted the nomination, you know, he said, uh, I've done my homework on this. He goes, and one out of four presidents don't survive office. And he goes, I like my odds. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> yep. Oh, my God. Well, and here's, a, here's another interesting story for you. Okay. Do you, have you ever heard of the name of uh, J. Burt Peck? Mm-mm. Okay. J. Burt Peck was Lyndon Johnson's second cousin, I believe. Okay. Um, looked identical to LBJ, sounded identical to LBJ. LBJ actually used him as a um, proxy or a sit-in, uh, you know, when he needed to, to be somewhere to, you know, cut the ribbon of a, a, you know, a new mall opening up or whatever the case may be, you know, uh, he would use J. Burt Peck as his proxy because he looked and sounded just like him. And that way Johnson could do things that he needed to do. Well, I interviewed <clears throat> the son of a, a person by the name of, I believe it was A.D. Riles, I believe. A.D. Riles was the night manager of the Hotel Texas on November 21st, 1963. And he said late that night, I, I interviewed his, uh, his children, his son. And late that night, uh, he said that uh, Kennedy showed up about 1130, 1145 range, walked in with the Secret Service, uh, you know, saluted, you know, the, the hotel staff standing there at the entryway of the hotel, went on the elevator, went up to a suite. He said five or 10 minutes later, LBJ came in. He goes, LBJ came in with Secret Service. He goes, he had his uh, raincoat, you know, pulled up. He goes, because it had started raining. He goes, he had his raincoat pulled up, you know, around his face, had his hat, uh, Stetson hat tucked down real low, didn't acknowledge anybody, walked by, um, you know, the staff went up to his room. <clears throat> and he said, about 115 that night he goes the vice president came down again he goes came down walked outside he goes he had a 
a cigarette in his hand. He goes, I assumed he was going out to, to smoke with the uh, Secret Service agent. He goes, although he could have smoked in the room if he wanted to, it wasn't a big deal in 1963. He goes, but he had a cigarette in his hand. He goes, and again, you know, had his uh, raincoat, I mean, his overcoat up to here and his hat pulled down, cigarette in his hand, he walked outside. He goes, five minutes later, he goes, vice president comes back in. He's wearing a different overcoat, uh, doesn't have the cigarette. Uh, his hat is noticeably a different color. And he acknowledges the uh, staff as he walks back in and goes up to his room. Well, when I interviewed this guy, I was like, well, you know, that's a little weird, but big deal. Well, then I started thinking once I found out about Jay Burt Peck. That was Jay Burt Peck that came into the hotel. That was Jay Burt Peck that went out. Johnson was at the Murkison party with Emory Roberts, the special agent in charge of the Dallas trip. He was with him. Um, and that's who came back in with Johnson at around 1.30 that morning. Because immediately after that, Emory Roberts notified uh, Roy Kellerman, who, if you know, recognize that name, he was the passenger in JFK's limousine of the Secret Service. And Kellerman was in charge of the protection while uh, Emory Roberts was gone. And they called the um, Fort Worth Volunteer Fire Department to come guard the president and vice president's rooms. And the Secret Service agents went out drinking after that. Okay. Roberts was told at that party, you know, hey, there's going to be an assassination attempt tomorrow and you're to do nothing of it. Uh, you know, again, I don't have any proof of this uh, because even though Madeline Brown said a Secret Service agent was there, she never, she didn't identify Emory Roberts. She did say he went into the room with uh, the vice president. Um, but I believe that he was basically told, you know, there's going to be an assassination attempt tomorrow and you're to do nothing to stop it. And if you have a problem with that, you won't walk out of this room tonight. Okay. Uh, that's the reason why the next day, Emory Roberts stood up at Love Field. He's actually motioning uh, Agents Lawton and Ripka off of the car to not protect it anymore uh, because he knows what's going to happen. Um, he also tried to convince, uh, I don't know if it's Connolly or not, but one of them to go sit in his car. He asked him multiple times trying to get him to get in his car. Well, Connolly, Johnson wanted Connolly in his car. Yeah. And had a huge argument with uh, JFK before the breakfast. And JFK said, you know, yesterday Connolly rode with me at Carswell Air Force Base, but when we went to the second function of the day, he rode with you. He goes, and Yarborough rode with me. He goes, tomorrow, he goes, Connolly is with me, you know, on the first part again, and he'll be with you on the second part. And Johnson was throwing a fit because he didn't want his best friend to be in the car. Uh, you know, because again, he knew this was about to happen. And so he threw a fit at JFK and said, you know, Connolly is to ride with me. And JFK literally said to him, you let Connolly know he can ride with me or he can goddamn walk. Uh, is what JFK said to Johnson. And so Johnson didn't want Connolly in the car because he knew of an assassination attempt. Um, now, was Connolly just a friendly person? Is that why everybody wanted him? Or was JFK doing that as like a sign of protection? No, JFK wanted him in there to, um, his whole purpose of the Texas trip was to raise money and to bring the Democratic Party together in Texas because um, um, Yarborough um, 
was arguing with uh, Albert Thomas, a congressman here. Um, and there was a lot of rumors that Texas might go uh, Republican. So he was here to mend fences and uh, do all these political dinners and raise money for the Democratic Party. Connolly was Lyndon Johnson's best friend from forever. Um, in 1948, the Box 13 uh, vote scandal with Lyndon Johnson, John Connolly was his campaign manager. He knew everything that was going on with that. Uh, the Box 13 scandal, if you're, if you're familiar with it, it was where they had a recount in a little town called Alice, Texas. And um, there was a 201 vote error and 200 votes went to Johnson and one went to Coach Stevenson. And so therefore, Lyndon Johnson won the 1948 Senate race uh, by 86 votes. And ironically, all 201 people in that recount, they, all, uh, they were all nice enough to vote in alphabetical order and use the same blue ink pen when they voted. Um, and that was basically uh, payback for when um, uh, Johnson ran for another position, I believe in 41 or 42. And basically he lost that election uh, to a similar tactic. And so uh, Ed Clark's law firm and the uh, district attorney of that uh, particular county, I can't remember now off the top of my head in Alice, Texas, you know, they had this set up so that if the election, you know, came down to being that close, they were going to have, quote, a recount so that they could get Johnson in. Uh, Coach Stevenson was the former governor of Texas, very popular guy. Um, and, you know, Ed Clark, uh, you know, was uh, the man behind Johnson uh, because Ed Clark ran one of the biggest law firms in, in Texas, in Austin. And basically Johnson was his boy. And he knew once he got Johnson in, to the Senate, hopefully, you know, further up vice president, president that he would have, he basically ran the entire state at that point because any law that wanted to be passed had to basically go through his law firm. Uh, so he, you know, he rented a helicopter for Johnson to, to tour in. Um, Johnson literally flew from town to town, throwing out flyers, talking about uh, Coach Stevenson, uh, how he didn't stand up to the I think it's a Taft-Hartley Act or something like that, but basically, you know, labeling him a, a communist, you know, which was something you didn't do in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, but Johnson called that helicopter the uh, uh, something like the, the Johnson City Windmill or something other like that. But yeah, I mean, like I said, the the whole you know, Coke thir uh, the whole uh, Box 13 scandal was all about getting Johnson into power. I just got one last thing for you, which is through all the interviews you've done, through all the JFK research and work you've done towards your book, towards having a site, towards your film as well, too. I mean, the, a lot of people will probably be in the boat of like the government's evil and all that, you know, but I, I, I consider the boat like you have to kind of recognize the evil and be able to kind of root it out to be able to build on like a good foundation. Um, I, I'm guessing you probably have the same sense or do you feel like, you know, since you've learned so much about the JFK, I mean, medical evidence cover up so much stuff that goes into things that sound like it's out of a movie. I mean, do you feel better knowing that or are you just kind of happy that you're trying to get the truth out? Just happy I'm getting the truth out. It's um you know, my, my wife is always, uh, you know, worried, you know, you, you, you can't do this. You can't write about that. You can't say this. And, uh, I always joke around, well, there's bigger fish to fry than me. Uh, you know, Mark Lane lived until 
you know, 72, 73 years old. Robert Roden's still alive. I'm sorry, Mark Lane lived to 89. Uh, Jim Artis lived to 72, 73. Uh, Robert Roden's still alive. Uh, Barb McClellan, who was Lyndon Johnson's personal attorney from 1966 to 1973, is still alive. Um, and I have Barb McClellan in my uh, documentary film, flat out says, I know Lyndon Johnson killed John F. Kennedy. He said he killed him to become president, killed him to avoid going to prison. He goes, and there is no doubt in my mind. And this is his personal attorney. Uh, you know, and, and Barr's still alive today. So, you know, there's bigger fish to fry. Um, I just look at the more information I can get out to people, especially younger people, people like yourself and even younger high school students, college students. I speak at as, as, as many high schools and universities that I can across the country, um, you know, public libraries as much as I can across the country, just to get the word out. Uh, because the, the sad part is the truth is already out there. The media will not ever disclose it. Well, I think it's going to ooze out at some point. I, think, I feel like a lot of people are hopping on board and I'm happy that there's, into, there's researchers like yourself that are out there trying to get the message out there. But we're real quick, where can everybody find your links, um, your book, your website, um, anything else you want to promote if you have a Twitter? Um, I'm not real big into uh, social uh, media, but uh, you can get my uh, book and documentary film at my website, The Innocence of Oswald. You can also get it at Amazon.com, even though temporarily it's it's down right now uh, because I got to send them some more books, but uh, that'll, that'll be cleared up in a few days. Uh, but I, I recommend getting it at Amazon.com instead of my website. That way people can go back on and write a review if they want to of my book. Um, my future book will be on there as well. It's called JFK Marked for Death. And the tagline of it is, who stood to lose if JFK had lived? Uh, and it's going to be all about the people and the agencies uh, that had something to lose if JFK had lived. Uh, so again, there's chapters on the FBI, the Secret Service, the uh, CIA, the military industrial complex, uh, Lyndon Johnson. I mean, it, it goes through a, a wide myriad of, uh, of people that, like I said, had the means, motives, and opportunities to, to kill JFK. Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.